Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of the LFC Red Boats podcast. Tonight I'm joined as usual by my co-hosts Tom Keegan and Pete Warburton and we're joined tonight by Mike Wilson and special guest, former Premier League assistant referee Glenn Turner. So welcome everybody to the podcast and I'll open the, 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 the podcast by asking Glenn, how did you get onto the um to run the line in the Premier League, what was the process that you had to go through in order to reach? You know, what is the the pinnacle for you know for an assistant referee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the process really hasn't changed much. There are there are a few more steps along the way now than when I did it. Well, the process is pretty much the same, lads. You, know, everybody starts the same way, and that is we all have to take the basic. It's called the basic refereeing course. You all have to take that and get a minimum pass and. Somehow I managed to achieve that mark. And uh, I, I passed my exams and then started off, um, as most people do really, just Sunday morning, you know, kind of bucket bangers FC against uh, <laughs> Town United or whatever. And uh, um, you start off Sunday mornings and you're very much reliant on clubs marking you well <laughs> to finish pretty well up that ladder. And then uh, if you do well on the Sunday morning, you can progress through to, to Saturdays, where football is obviously often a bit more, um, there's a bit more skill attached to it than when they've had a belly full of up now before. <laughs> <laughs> so you get on to kind of Saturdays, refereeing, and then you move into semi-professional, again, based upon club marks. Once you get to that semi-professional, you're not only reliant on clubs marking you well, but occasionally you'll get assessors coming out to mark you as well. Um, if you do well in that, you can progress onto the line of Saturday afternoons, even more serious football, then into the middle of even more serious football. Then you get onto the line of what is now called the National League, used to be the Vauxhall Conference when I was on it. Then if you do well, into the middle of the Vauxhall Conference and once you're there you can also be promoted to the line of the Football League and I was lucky to get that double jump after a line on after one year on the Football League somebody thought I must have been doing okay um, I got promoted onto the line of the Premier League and after a few years on there I don't know how but somehow somebody thought I was still doing okay and I got promoted onto the line of the international list <laughs> and then kind of the world is literally your oyster because you can end up anywhere and everywhere and you do it's great great life lads I've had a fantastic life in football loved it so so tell me Dan Glenn so when I mean the way I look at it as a fan and you know we're all we all know <clears throat> the game and we're all really critical of the referee but I've always had a little bit more sympathy, if you like, for liners because where you're when you're standing on the on the line trying to judge the offside from you know, when when a player actually plays the ball yeah. to to when you know you flag that somebody's offside. I think that's you know tremendously hard. And this is somebody who is very critical of match officials, especially nowadays. But but when when you actually think about it. The actual skill to do that. I mean, the best, one of the best assistant referees, if we call him that, or liners, whichever way you want to use, I thought, was Sean Massey. Yeah. I used to think that, and I haven't seen her around for a while, but when I used to watch games with her officiating, I used to think she was absolutely top-notch. And 
And as I say, when you're seeing her running the line, she was very, very rarely make a mistake. And and like, so how difficult is it? And how how do you how do you make that split split second judgment? Yeah, just just before I come on to answer that, a couple of things really. I mean, call us liners, call us assistant referees, call us what you want. We've been gone a lot worse. And as you've as you've raised, Sean, um, I, I I enjoyed a few games with Sean, particularly on the first season on the Premier League. I, I remember a particular memorable game at Wolves against Liverpool, strangely enough, where she had an outstanding game. Um, mm. Now, when you consider all of the things that you have already touched upon and many other tales I can tell you that we have to put up with on the line that, that he or she in the middle doesn't, um, when you also factor in that, you know, that Sean is a woman in a man's game and some of the nonsense that she's had to put up with that we as men never had to put up with, she has done exceptionally well, as have the other, the other girls and women on the, on the list. They're fantastic. I've got nothing but admiration for Sean and her colleagues. Um, what I particularly liked about Sean too was she, she absorbed every little bit of information that she could. You know, I remember, I remember saying to me at that, that evening game at Wolves, well before kickoff, this is like when we meet in the hotel four hours before, Glenn, I want to learn from you. Glenn, I want to learn from you. And that wasn't my ego being boosted. That was I like this. I like this. I like somebody who wants to come on and wants to learn from somebody who's been on there a long time, um, rather than somebody who arrives thinking that they know it all. So that, that was excellent from Sean. When when it comes to, you know, specifically the question that you asked, um, I love lining. I, I love lining. And maybe that's um, a difference in, in character, although I've got to say, I equally love refereeing and I have the opportunity to progress my refereeing career. Um, but I chose to stay on the line. Um, but I love lining. The big difference between lining and being in the middle is, of course, our decisions on the line are factual, as opposed to most of the decisions in the middle are of opinion. Me, me on the line, it either is offside or it isn't offside. There's no, well, it might have been let it, it will be okay, or that's down to the lino's discretion. No, it's not. Whereas a referee gives a free kick for a foul, well, you might think it is, you may might think it isn't, but it's all down to the referee in the middle because that's, that's a matter of opinion. Now, I liked mine because it was factual and I either was correct or I wasn't correct. And, and somehow I must have managed to get more right than I got wrong because I, I got a few promotions along the way. But I guess that's a character thing. I like the added pressure of definitely being right or definitely being wrong. Oh, how do you judge the offsides then, Glenn? You know, you know, because you know, it, it, it's a really difficult sort of yeah, looking yeah. when you know the fellas kick the ball to where because the movements of the forwards, say, Fernando yeah, yeah. yeah. or a Michael Owen or you know a really quick forward in a yeah. blink of an eye, they've gone, and then oh, you've got to yeah, yeah. judge whether they're on yeah. or off. Yeah, yeah. The, two, you use two things really: your eyes and your ears. And, and you know, well, your ears, when you've got 75,000 at Old Trafford, most of whom are perhaps questioning your parentage because of what you've just given five <laughs> seconds earlier, how, how on earth are your ears any good? Well, you know, if any, any lino tells you that they don't hear everything, they're not telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yes, we do. But I, I kind of managed to zone in my hearing into foot on ball. 
Now, when the ball were being cleared, let's say, say by Gary Neville at right back, and I've got Ryan Giggs flying up the left wing and, and he's hit a crossfield ball, I was watching Giggs, but I was listening for boot on ball. And that's that's that when I hear that thud of boot on ball from Neville's pass, that's when I'm making my snapshot decision. Right, where's Giggs? Is he on? Is he off? And, and I managed somehow to kind of fine-tune that into what most people do call lining, which is an art. It's really more of an art than a skill, lining. You, you hone your talents, you hone your, your skills to be able to marry those two things together. And if you can do that, you're very much likely to get more right than you do wrong. Mm-hmm. I also benefited from, being, from becoming really good mates with one of the best assistant referees, in my opinion, anyway, this country's ever produced, and that's Phil Sharp from Hertfordshire. Sharp is still is to this day a good mate of mine. And, and he gave me some excellent advice very early doors when he said, when you're judging them, Glenn, if you think it's tight, it's probably on. And I used to carry that with me. <laughs> hey, if I think it's tight, because of that, you know, a split second and a forward running at speed can yeah. move three metres easily. And Sharpie told me, if you think it's tight, it's probably on. Glenn, um, what sort of, you, you mentioned your career starting and then obviously getting into like the, the Premier League and beyond. What yeah. sort of timescale did that take for you from starting afresh, if you want, to build yeah. it up to being such a high, you know, in the high ranks? Yeah, I was, I was very lucky, really. I, I kind of made promotion season after season after season. And, and obviously, after only one season on the Football League to then be promoted onto the Premier League, you can't do it any quicker than that. So mm. I was very lucky. Is that I remember being in the meeting. Um, there was a meeting at the end of the season for all football league assistants who had only been on that one season. And so there were about, you know, there were maybe 30, 40 of us in the room. And Jim Ashworth was the football referee secretary of the football league at the time. And I remember him giving this speech about, you know, most of you in this room have had an exceptional season. And there's one person in this room who's going to get um, the just rewards. And at that point, Jim caught my eye. But I didn't think anything of it because I can tell you, I didn't think I, I'd, done, I'd done particularly well. I didn't think I was outstanding, you know, certainly to use Jim's words. I didn't think I was that. But, um, you know, a couple of minutes later, and he said, Can we all give a round of applause to Glenn Turner? He's going straight on to the Premier League next season. I went, Jesus, me. <laughs> <laughs> and I honestly could not believe I'd, I'd made that, that jump. So, pretty lightning, really. I was very lucky. Um, and then after you've made it to the Premier League, of course, there's just one more promotion that we're all pushing for at that, and that's to get onto the FIFA list, the international list. Um, it, in, in the time, the day that I was waiting to get on, the years I was waiting to get on, you were almost kind of dead man's shoes. You were waiting for somebody to be taken off because of age, rather than these days, they do get removed because of... Well, performance. There's no, there's no way of sweetening it up. Some of them just aren't good enough, and it's more ruthless now, UEFA and FIFA, than it was when I first started. So I was waiting to get my FIFA badge. I say my FIFA badge. There was no, you know, there were no guarantees I was ever going to get on there. But when I got on the Premier League 95-96 season, um, 
the following season, I started receiving international appointments, even though I wasn't an international assistant referee. So again, I was fairly lucky um, to have made that quick possession, that quick promotion, to have started going out on early rounds of UEFA Cup, Europa League as it is now. Um, and, and now looking back, I didn't know at the time because I was young and green. I was just like, delighted to be going away and represented in the country. Um, looking back now, I could see that they were boarding me to see, is he going to be good enough? How does he behave when he's abroad? All of those kind of things. Um, but that's how it works, lads. Yeah, that's how it works. Well, Glenn, do you know when they, they, you see the game as it, it goes faster at every level that you go yep. up? When yeah. you get to the Premier League, is that is that is that the fastest you'll ever yeah. become, and then you sort of have yeah. to learn to adjust to it very quickly? Yeah, the difference in speed between the Championship and the Premier League, I I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the words <laughs> to tell you how quick it is. And some of those Championship teams are good, but it's not the same right through the Championship. Whereas it is the same right through the Premier League, and the game is so fast. Um, it's fast now. It's always been fast. That's the you know that's the modus operandi of the, the teams in the Premier League. They move the ball quickly and they move it well, uh, and that's why the you know the, the elite level of the English game because you know ninety nine times out of hundred when they hit a pass, it goes where they want it to, and it not only goes where they want it to, it gets there very quickly, and, and you've got to be able to respond to that. Now, again, I've, you know, you look at me, there's not, still not a lot on me at my ripe old age. I'm, maybe I was lucky in my physiology that I've never carried a lot of weight. I've always been quick. <laughs> um, so maybe I, maybe some of my promotions came as a result of uh, me fortunately being a skinny lad who could run fast as well. <laughs> Glenn, you know, you know when, you, when you sort of paired with, with certain referees, did some of them give you different instructions about what they wanted you to do, contribute during the game? Like so the impression some fans got from certain referees and certain assistants was that I'm going to make the big decisions. Don't you get involved? You just give the throw-ins and the offsides, and I'm going yeah. to make yeah. all exactly. the decisions. And exactly. sometimes, sometimes you'll see like you're at the game and you'll say something happened in front of a linesman. Mm. And the lines won't flag at anything, yeah. and you'll say, you know, how can you not? How can you not be seeing that? Or you'll see a foul in the area, and you think the lines was looking right on that. Yet he's kept his flag down, not even attempted to to bring the referee over. Mm. And yet other things, you know, something <laughs> happen in front of the linesman. The linesman won't give it. And the referee is like forty yards away. I'll give mm. a free kick the other way, and you think, how? You're thinking about John Moss here, right? Well, not just him. The very best referees, lads, um, are the ones who don't believe they can run the game all by themselves. If they could do it all, why are they sending four of us? Um, And and the very best referees, Graham Graham Pauls, Mark Oles, he was superb at this. He was a brilliant team builder. Jeff Winter was excellent. I remember Jeff Winter when I was at the FA Cup game with him once. And one of the I heard over Jeff's headset one of the players question one of my decisions, and Jeff said, "Don't be stupid. He's the best in the world." <laughs> that was I mean, that's lovely for me to hear. But that's that's the kind of team man that Jeff Winter was. I only ever worked with one referee, and I only ever worked with him once, thankfully. Who 
told me that the ball in and out of play was mine, offsides were mine, and everything else was his. Um, no, fine if you want to do that, but I'm, that's why am I there? Ask him, what am I here for then? You know, if somebody smacks somebody in the mouth right in front of me, you don't want me to know if your back's turned there. You know, that, because that's where we're getting to. I'll tell you a funny story on that. It wasn't my game, this, but um, there was a referee who gave that instruction. He, he, he had well, a similar one. He said to, to the assistant referee, um, everything inside the penalty area is mine. Don't you lads get involved. And the Lionels went, everything? And he said, yes, everything in the penalty area is mine. You two don't get involved. And they went, oh, okay. Anyway, there's this long ball pumped up front and the centre forward is just walking back. He's miles offside. And he's about 10 yards away from goal. You know what's coming, don't you? So <laughs> the, ball, the ball lands at his feet and it's a bit of a laugh, really. He trapped it, he knocked it in. Flag stayed down. <laughs> <laughs> Referee's still giving the goal. He's looking at a line out. The line has kept his flag down. They've come in at half time, they're going mental. The benches are going absolutely apoplectic. They've, they've managed to fight their way through to the dressing room, and the ref saying, That looked well offside to me. Why didn't you give it? He said, It was, but you said everything in penalty area was yours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, terrible for the team who've conceded the goal, but there's your lesson, referee. You You've got to tell us who that was, Glenn. Sorry? You've got to tell us who that was. <laughs> 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 well, you love me too. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I, don't mind few... telling you, I don't mind telling you the referee was who, who made me feel like I didn't need to be there. That was David Ellery. Oh, he <laughs> was ruthless. Say no more. Say yeah. no more, yeah. 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 I, I, ran, I ran one line for the lads and that was enough. I came away thinking, well, I don't, you don't need me. You think you can do this on your own? <laughs> but he always, he always did think he knew everything right. He always came over as a, well, he was a head teacher, wasn't he? He came over quite yeah, yeah, pompous. Yeah. And I talk, pompous. I talk about that lovingly because my dad was a head teacher, but he was nothing <laughs> like him. I'm, th I'm 32 years in education with my career, so I've got no beef with head teachers. <laughs> but I certainly have some beef with Ellery. And now, um, you know, I'm. Um, Chesterfield are also one of my two teams, so I've got a lot of beef with Emery. 97 <laughs> semi-final. All right, yeah. Glenn, can I just quickly recount a story from, just a funny story, but you may know the, the linesman it involves. I'm sure he won't find me mentioning him. Went to a Liverpool game years ago. <laughs> and you played Leicester City, and I think Leicester scored after about a minute, and they won 1-0 in the end. And I'm looking over, I'm, I sit in the main stand and I'm looking over the far side, what was then known as the Kemlin Road or the Centenary, yeah. the Kennedy. And I said to the lad next to me, I know him, he's from Birkenhead, that fella. That line to me, he said, he can't be from Birkenhead. I said, I'm telling you, he's from Birkenhead. So we got a programme and I saw the name S Brand. You may not see the brand, I don't know. So I said, he's from Birkenhead. I said, I know him. Say hello to him. That anyway, I saw him a few weeks later, and I said, "Hi, Steve." I said, "I don't think you know me properly." He said, "But you, you were running the line against Leicester," and he went, "Oh no, yeah." I said, "How did you get that gig?" I said, "Because you live like four miles from Anfield," and he said, "Well, I'm in the I'm in the Cheshire FA, and Liverpool is classed as Lancashire or or Merseyside, whatever." 
And he said, I actually said to them, look, I don't live far from the ground, you know. And he said, it doesn't matter. But like Les was saying before, Stevie Brand had a butchers in Birkenhead Marcus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, the abuse he was getting. <laughs> I'm not coming to your stall anymore, Brandy. I'm not buying shops off you anymore. <laughs> he said, it was incessant. He said, yeah. it was absolutely incessant. And it, he said, I'll, he said, I know Brandy well. We, we did loads of games together and spent a lot of time together at training camps. He is one funny lad. He me when, when I said, how did you get on? He just shook his head as if to say, never again, please, never <laughs> again, you know. But yeah, he said that you're just getting abuse all game. Loads of bacon head lads in the crowd shouting. Because I knew him from the market, you see. I'm pretty sure it was Brandy as well who didn't drive. And he used to catch the train everywhere because he, he didn't drive. That day I spoke to him, he was actually down to referee a game at Boston United. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and he didn't say he didn't say I was getting there, but he said I've got to go all the way to Boston, and he said it's a live game on the telly. It was when it was the not the Northern Premier, but the and he said I'm doing Boston United. He said I thought he'd have got a more local referee. He said, but I've got to get over to Boston. He said, Yeah, yeah. I'd say if, when the fixtures come out, if and if I, if we happen to be at the training camp, uh, I'd say, oh Brandy, I see you know you're down at I don't know Southampton. Next week, oh, thanks for telling me, Glenn. That's the and he'd rattle off the train timetable to me. <laughs> 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 I thought that was an encyclopedia and train times. Really, <laughs> yeah, he's a good lad, Brandy. He was, yeah. oh, great lad, great yeah. lad. So, so Glenn, did you say you, you, you've been you're a teacher? No, no, I was a school business manager for all the years. Yeah, the reason I ask is I'm going to ask if anybody at the, the school you worked at. Uh, and this, so you and I are the same age. So um, I was in high school, probably seventeen. So you wouldn't have been refing at this point or lining at this time. But I turned up in the. I it must have been early eighties. I'm guessing Liverpool beat Southampton. Peter Schilt was in goal. Five nil it was to Liverpool. <coughs> Lawrenson got two. I think Whelan got two, and Sooners got one. But my deputy head was running the line. <laughs> for the school that I was at, he was running the line. Now, we knew, he used to ref the Staffy School football match. And so we knew he was a qualified ref and that, but he turned up and he was running the line. And, <clears> and I used to stand on the cop, but at this time, me and my mates, we went right down to the front, to the corner. And and he was follically challenged as well. He was, <laughs> he was a relatively young... And we gave him dogs abuse the whole of the game because we could. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. the first lesson on the Monday was history, and he was my history teacher. And 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 me and my mate who who, who went to the game with him, we went over. So Mr. Lewis, he was called John Lewis. He was called Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis, we we saw you on Saturday. So why did Ronnie Whelan get booked? We couldn't work that one out, and we were all being really nice. And 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 uh, he just smiled because I we got the impression that he'd seen us, and he'd seen that we were abusing him right, left, and centre, and just kind of took it in uh, good spirits. But we'll yeah. never know whether he really did. But uh, it was one of the most funny experiences. A couple of the schools I've worked at during during the time have been in Sheffield and, and Sheffield United, of course. I've I've done them when they were in football league and Premier League. 
and other kids in the stand giving me absolute dogs. <laughs> I'll tell you what, they're in, they're in my office in their house. Yeah. So, when you you know when you were appointed to to the youth and you're doing like UEFA Cup games and yeah. Champions League games and etc etc. When you get appointed, do you wait for sort out all your flights, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Yeah, absolutely everything. Um, and you know, it's really, really, I know, this sounds like a cliche. It sounds like we're all saying, but I tell you, it really is a privilege. It is. <laughs> and 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 our ninety nine percent of international appointments work is that they are three day appointments. You fly the day before the game, then you do the game, and then you fly home on day three after the game. Um, and, and you don't have to sort anything out other than get yourself to the English airport. Everything else is done for you. The tickets, you, you fly business class, you put up in absolutely stunning hotels. Um, you met at the, at the airport by referee liaison officer who never leaves your side for all the three days that you're there. Um, you eat and drink in the best restaurants available. You just have to make sure you do the business for the 90 minutes, otherwise you'll leave in absolute disgrace. And if you happen to be in countries like Turkey and the home team have lost, it's often a delay at the airport. Who was your first international game, Glenn? Uh, I went to Porto um, before I got on the international list. That was my first one. And I Porto, for some reason, were, were a regular home for me. I reckon I've been there a good eight, ten times at least, you know, different Champions League or, or UEFA Cup, you know, both, both competitions of... I love Porto as well, beautiful place. They take you to the... Um, the day before the game, um, they'll take you to the um, vineyard where they make the port. It's good stuff. They, they put some really nice stuff on for you. But, of course, you've then got to get your game face on the day after and, and do the business. Otherwise, they're not happy. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Glenn, what's the what's the routine like when you go to like a a major tournament like a World Cup, yeah. and you're mixing with with sort of officials from you know other countries and yeah, yeah. you know yeah, there's, there's obviously you know with some possibly there's there's sort of language barriers and different yeah, yeah. things like that. And do, do you is there a period where you go out before the tournament and oh, yeah. do a climatize and do a training camp and stuff? Yeah, I mean. I'll... Very fortunate, I did a couple of tournaments and I turned one back as well. I did the Euro 2004 in Portugal, I did World Cup 2006, uh, and it's no secret now, although the FA asked me to keep it secret for many years, and I did, it's no secret now, I turned back Euro 2008 as well, I said I wasn't going. Um, but how it works is, once you've been selected, uh, referee and two assistants generally from the same country, but not always, but usually, Referee and two assistants. Um, you, you're all um, invited to um, a pre-tournament meeting, which more often than not will be at UEFA headquarters in Switzerland, or it could be in the country itself where the tournament's being held. And, and you'll do two or three days there, just breaking the ice, getting to meet everybody from the uh, referees committee and the other match officials. Then you go home, and then obviously pre-tournament, you, you, you go out there and for, for the Euros, I was out away from home about four weeks. Uh, for a World Cup, you can be away for anything up to six weeks. Um, you'll go out and you'll have roughly a week before the tournament 
starts, um, the very first thing you have to do is uh, the second day after your arrival, we'll give you a day to bed in, and then the second day everybody has to pass the FIFA fitness test. Although you've already passed passed it to be on the international list that year, and you've already passed your Premier League fitness test, they test you again, and, and if you fail, they're ruthless, you're straight back on the plane in your home, and I can tell you that happened at the World Cup. Um, one, one lad failed his fitness test, him and his two assistants got sent home, uh, and FIFA flew in a lad from Mexico. It's funny this, because I'm only talking about this, believe it or not, with my daughter last night. Because this is incredible, I'm having this conversation again. Because uh, she was telling me how hot it is and she was going to the gym. I said, let me tell you a story about when I did the World Cup. Because it was this hot. It was plus 30, easily, uh, when we arrived. And we all had to pass the fitness test the following day. Which, you know, 99% of us did, but unfortunately this one didn't. Um, and so FIFA said, what we'll do is we'll fly in one of the reserve teams. And we hope that he passes the fitness test. They flew in this kid from Mexico who lived about 4,000 miles above sea level anyway. So we're <laughs> all in the stadium. What is now day three? We passed ours the day before and we're doing normal training routines whilst this kid's just doing lap after lap after lap, smiling and waving at us. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's normally running in air, but it's that thing you can, you know, he's, he's absolutely sailed it, this kid has, and we're still all breathing out our backsides. <laughs> and this little kid from Mexico, which is jogging around the track, you know, one way out of time with it. But, yeah, that's, that's how it works. You get out there about a week before the tournament. Um, come the end of the group stages in both tournaments, that's when they do the first call. So, um, unfortunately, both tournaments, um, we were called. Mike Riley pulled an incredible decision out during Euros, and we all knew we were going on at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, unfortunately, Graham Paul pulled out his uh, three-card tricky World Cup 2006, and we definitely knew we were going on at that point. <laughs> um, so I got called at both points. Um, I've got to say... Had Graham not done what he did, I still to this day believe we would have gone very, very deep in that World Cup, if not to the final, because up to that point, our reputation was very, very high amongst the referees committee. It's one of those things we'll never know, and I don't let it eat me up, but I, which, I wonder just how, how far we could have gone. Um, but you know, these things happen, and as I say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I have, I have my, I have my suspicions, by the way. Sorry, Pete, go on. I was going to say, it's just a little trying to crack a, a bit of a joke at someone's expense, but the four of us go to the game now, and you're going on about, you know, having to do the fitness thing. I'm just thinking if any of us four would think that uh, Roger Kirkpatrick might have. Yeah. It might be tricky, lads, is all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. I, I was always amazed how John Moss ever passed it, to be honest. They could just I just sort of never could imagine him, yeah. him passing any fitness sort of test, to be honest. But no. what I was going to say to you, because going back to the the thing with Graham Paul and his, his three yellow card trick, yeah. um, I, I, I've always had my suspicions that he did that on purpose because, in my mind, he was always a showman. It was always all about him. Yeah. And he was, I, can, he was, I can absolutely assure you because I saw... 
I'm going to say I saw Graham afterwards. We didn't because he locked himself in his room for three days. All <laughs> right. Uh, me, and, me and Sharpie, Phil Sharp was doing a line and we got quite concerned in the end and asked the hotel to go into his room to make sure it was okay. But he, he was, he just, you know, he locked himself away and didn't want to see the world. Um, <laughs> but I, well, I, can, you know, I can promise you that he didn't do it on purpose. Graham, you, Graham believed he was going to referee the World Cup final, I can tell you. Um, do, you know, do you know what, Glenn? I, I felt a bit sorry for him in that game, you know, because he was under loads of pressure that game, wasn't he? He yeah. was playing yeah. up. He was yeah, playing up, wasn't he? They, they, like, they, were Thomas, they were Thomas, but, you know, again, it's no secret. I'm not breaking anybody's confidence. He's it's, it's been out in the public for a long time. We've obviously got open mics. And, yeah. and I can hear what Graham's saying. He can hear what I'm saying. We can hear what Phil's saying. The other officials, the fourth official and the fifth official, when they want to talk to us, they have to press a button. Because what you don't want is all the background noise from the benches yeah. coming over into your ears all the time during the game. So they were unpressed to talk. The three active officials on the field of play were all on open mic. And I, I, Mark Viduka played for Australia. Australia-Croatia was the game, in case you don't remember. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can tell you, we knew Duke. We knew Duke ever so well. You know, we'd been playing at Middlesbrough Premier League. He played Leeds United Premier League. We knew him ever so well. I had a little chat with him before the game. I had a chat with Tim Cahill, one or two others that we knew. Um, and every, everything was going fine. But I can promise you that, that when Graham pulled out the second yellow card, both Phil and I heard very clearly over Graham's open mic, Graham, you've already booked him. To which Polly, um, I won't, I won't use the language that Gillian Keegan used yesterday, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Graham told him to go away and do his job, and he'd do his own. Um, <laughs> so it was, given, it was given advice that he knew. Um did, did he just not think he had? Yeah, he, well, not not that he didn't think he had. And Graham used Graham used a very simple way of recording his cautions, his bookings and his standings off. He had a, just a, a normal um, ring, a little notebook with a ring at the top. Yeah. With just eight lines in it and he drew a pencil line down the middle, one side Croatia, one side Australia. And unfortunately, when he cautioned Simic, the number three from Croatia for the first time, to put it in the Australia column. Ah, right. Very, very simple admin error, which which maybe cost us the World Cup final. Who will ever know? We'll never know, but certainly cost us going deeper into the competition because we got sent home. And, and I'm fairly confident we weren't going to get sent home because it had been going extremely well for us up to that point. I actually feel really sorry for him now. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> Graham's, Graham's, you know, he's by his own admission, and he said this to me many times, to Phil many times, and he said it publicly. So again, I'm not breaking any of Graham's confidences, which I wouldn't like to do. But he's always said he's not a tournament referee. Graham was an absolutely outstanding referee of the football match. Um, we were, not just could have been, we were taken specifically for specific games that were going to be trouble because they knew full well Polly could handle it. For example, leading up to World Cup 2006, there'd been an absolute cock-up in a qualifying match, which had to be replayed. The referee who made the error, he got dinged off. He lost his fee for international badge, so did his assistants. 
who did they call to do the replay game? Graham and his two assistants, because they knew full well it was in safe hands. You could take Graham Pollard, drop him into any game, one-off game in the world, and he would blind it. But by his own admission, he couldn't referee in tournaments. And he, and he said, I can't do it because I have to be known and recognised and, and, and have everybody recognise me as being number one. He was recognised as being number one referee in this country for a long, long time, and that suited Graham perfectly well, and, and he refereed exceptionally well on the back of that. When he went to tournaments, and we were refereeing alongside the likes of Kalina, Marcus Merck, Anders Frisk, all top, top international referees, suddenly Graham wasn't the biggest fish in the pond. He was a top, top referee. He was certainly alongside those fellas, but he wasn't being recognised as number one. And that's where it didn't always suit Graham and his character. And he couldn't cope with four, six weeks away of not being seen as being top dog. And that's Isn't that sad? Words. Isn't so that, that sad, Was that his ego thing, Glenn? Was that his ego or was that his ego or was it a genuine thing that he thought, well, the players don't know me? And they won't respect me or something, or was it, was it like not so much, it's not so much the players because the players knew him. You know, we we no, refereed all over the world, so we knew most of the players from most of the countries. So yeah. it wasn't the players; it was his peers. You know, within the refereeing group, so within that hotel, Graham needed to be recognised as being number one. Otherwise, he couldn't function as Graham Paul, number one referee in this country. Now. If that's ego, it's ego. But, you know, we've mm. all got an ego, and you need one, let me tell you. You need an ego to survive in football as a referee, and particularly as a, a top international referee, because every decision you make, you're upsetting at least half the people around you. And that can be anywhere up to 40,000 people in the stadium. Um, yeah. So you need an ego, because when you make a decision, as much as you know and believe it to have been a good one, there are a hell of a lot of people telling you how bad you are. <laughs> a hell of a lot of people telling you you've got it wrong. You've got to have one hell of a strong character to be able to stand up to that and mm. still carry on and referee the rest of the game very well. So maybe it was ego. I don't know. But mm. Graham turned his ego into ability when it came to refereeing uh, domestically, where he was recognised as number one. That suited him. And he, and he refereed on the back of that or being brought into referee one-off matches around the world. Because it was done for a reason, and he loved it. They brought Graham Paul in. Glenn, Glenn the, the thing from Tring, as we used to call him, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he refereed the uh, that game, didn't he, between Arsenal and United when Keenan Vieira... Yeah, I was on the line. I was just going to ask you, were you on the line yeah, that, I was that in, I was game in the as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was in the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was all started by Gary Neville and his now. Uh, <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he couldn't, he couldn't back it up. And, uh, you know, I've, I've recalled this many an after dinner speech, so I can tell you the full story if you want that. Go ahead. We're all the It had been, um, you know, you'll remember Arsenal Man United absolutely hated each other. Oh, yeah. I don't think it was much fun loss now, but it was bad then because they were top two. They were top dogs. Ferguson and Wenger, they were they were forever getting one over on each other. And the press had been whipping this game up. 
Liverpool for a week it was going to be the Battle of Ivory or what wasn't going to happen. And so we went taking all this into account when then um, when we were meeting at the hotel four hours beforehand and we said, listen, we need to lads, because anything could happen. You two are my eyes and ears. You don't be writing anything down or what you're watching everything. Because if three of us have got our heads buried in a book, writing something down, somebody will smack somebody. So you two, you're my eyes and ears when I'm writing in my book. You've gone through everything superbly well. Excellent. We, we arrived and we were right on it. We were ready. We were up for this. Anyway, um, Man United, they were beggars for it. They were, they were terrible for not coming out on time. They used to love making the other team wait for them. That's what it was. But a bit more psychodrama from Sir Alex. And um, he, he dispatched me off to go and get United out because they'd, they'd been a bit tardy coming out. Anyway, as I got to the dressing room door, it, it was the old Highbury. You, you probably haven't been behind the scenes, but it was a funny little rabbit warren. <laughs> um, not just a nice straight out of the dressing rooms into the corridor and out. Oh, you had to walk downstairs under tunnels. It was a right rabbit, rabbit warren. It wasn't wide enough either. Um, anyway, as I arrive to get United out, there's hell going off between um, Gary Neville and Patrick Vieira. Now, if ever there was a mismatch, you might as well put me in with Tyson Fury because <laughs> Patrick Vieira was towering over um, Gary Neville. But Gary Neville had been giving him some lip in the press, you see, what he wasn't going to do to him. And it had been rumoured that it had been threatened that legs were going to get broken and all this. Anyway, Gary Neville kind of quickly realised he'd bitten off a little bit more than he could chew it. Because <laughs> Patrick... He's a big lad, let me tell you, and he could handle himself. But in, so Gary scootled back into the dressing room and fetched Roy Keane. <laughs> <laughs> now, all right, there's probably a foot in footing height difference between Keane and Patrick Vieira. But when it came to bottle, Keane wasn't lacking, let me tell you. And and he got hold of Patrick Vieira and put him against the wall. And these words will never leave me. <laughs> He said, pick on somebody your own size. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Patrick, Patrick didn't want to know. He did not want to know. So I asked him back to the dressing room and said, Greg, you better get out here. What's the matter? What's the matter with you? He thought I was just having a problem getting United out on time. <laughs> you, you better get out here. He's all kicking up, lad. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Graham was absolutely magnificent. He, he, within a flash, he recognised what was going off. He got between them and he said to Keane, this stops now. Before we go down these tunnel steps, this stops. Because when you get out there, you're in my office. And nobody behaves like this in my office. You leave it now, Keno. You leave it, it's finished. And Keno said, Graham, it's done, it's dealt with. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember the game. Vieira, it was nowhere. It wouldn't. It, I mean, Vieira was a magnificent footballer, magnificent, and also a hard man. But he did not show up in that game because I think he knows if he'd gone anywhere near Keane, that would have been that. But mm -hmm. Keane settled it at the top of the steps at Highbury before before we even out on the grass. Wow, hell of a story, that. Can we can we now move on to the? 
two. I think that the subject that drives all football fans absolutely ballistic. The three words V A R. And I have to say, you know, as as for for football fans who've you know love the game, not just watch Liverpool, but watch all types of football on the TV. I fail to understand how 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 three so-called elite officials are watching the game in Stockley Park on television with numerous replays, numerous different angles, yet they still manage to get the big decisions wrong. Yeah. And big decisions that might not seem, you know, to, to the likes of Howard Webb or Mike Riley, who were the head of the referees at the time, to be, you know, a, a major decision. Oh, these things even themselves up, but they don't. No, so I'll give, you, I'll give you some examples. <clears throat> Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur v Liverpool, referee, Paul Taney, no <clears throat> friend of ours, right? Yeah. Both uh, VR, VAR official Chris Cavana. Yeah. And then I'll move on. Everton v Manchester City at Goodison. Referee, Paul Taney, VAR, Chris Cavana. Yeah. Tottenham <clears throat> Liverpool game, Harry Kane, on, on Andy Robertson. Red car. Red car all day. Right? Yeah. Taney doesn't give it. VAR doesn't want to know. Yeah. Five, five minutes later, Emerson Royale into the back of Diego Jota. Yeah. Clearest penalty you could see. Yeah. Nothing from VAR. Nothing from Taney. Yeah. Andy Robertson does something in the second half. They both see that. Yeah. The 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 uh, Cavana in the in the VAR yeah. sees that alerts Taney Robertson sent off. Then at Goodison, the handball by Rodri. Everybody mm. watching on TV yeah. can see that that handball. It might as well have caught it. And, <laughs> and, you know, and that basically those two games basically mm. was the destiny of the title that year. So how how can elite officials get it so wrong? I'm, well, as if I knew, if I knew, I've never had to work again, would I? The VAR drives us all mad, mate, because we were sold a promise, weren't we? We were sold a promise that this VAR was going to stop all this nonsense. You know, the, the, the things that on-field officials miss, and we've all missed them, and it, you can miss stuff on-field. And, and, and sometimes it's excusable, sometimes it's not, but sometimes it's excusable. You know, a tackle can go in a bad one, but just as the tackle's made, another player might run across the referee. Just at that very moment, the foot went in. So his line of vision was, you know, it was obscured. I can go with that. I can go with the on-field officials missing it. What I cannot and never will understand is how people sitting in a clinicised room, it's beautifully quiet, they've got multiple screens, how they can ever get a decision wrong. 100% of the decisions coming out of the VIR room should and must be correct. There is no excuse for getting them wrong. On the field, yes. In a VAR room, no excuse at all. There's, there's two things for me about this, and, and, and I'll give you an example. So let, me, let me give you one example first. So, you know the uh, Bournemouth game this season? Yes. Where the McAllister sending off, right? Yeah. Yeah. I will stay to this day. I thought Thomas Bramall had a really good game that day. I think yeah. he got 
90% of everything spot on. And I understand why he might have given a red, because it looked like that to him. Yeah, yeah. And he was absolutely let down by the the, the VAR. Was that that Mr. Tierney again? Yeah. Yeah. Tierney struck again this weekend, didn't he? Um, Luton, West Ham, Friday night. I mean, Tierney referee John Brooks was VAR. James Ward-Prowse. Again, he caught the thing. Yeah, yeah, it was mad, wasn't it? But the, the other strike again. But the other one, the, the other thing that gets me about things like so he was clearly let down by the VAR, and actually he had a really good game. Um, the other thing that gets me is how often do the on-field refs, when the VAR doesn't do that. How often they they walk away from the game having seen that they should have referred and didn't? Do they feel completely let down by their by their VAR colleagues? It must really annoy because because oh. Thomas Bramall would have had a really good yeah. all round game with not even one block to it yeah. if the simple thing had been done. Yeah, yeah, and you know how many times? Goodness knows. Um, VAR. For me, they now they now need to make a decision on VAR. Either Webby has got to get stuck into this and get it sorted out, or scrap the thing, because it was brought in. I say it again: we were sold. We were sold in high days. We were told this was going to cure all renewables. That all incorrect, major key match incidents on field would be corrected, and we, and we, we all have a right to expect that to be the case because. Well, Sitting in a television room, it should, yeah, be, yeah. it should be easy, lads. There's no pressure on you. There are no fans wanting to kill you. You haven't got the managers in your face. You haven't got the players on your toes. Nobody's screaming in your face. You haven't got the heat, the temperature of the game to cope with. You're sitting miles away in a sterilised area. There is no excuse to keep getting these wrong. She's the excuse is clear and obvious, though, isn't it? Clear and obvious is the, is the excuse they hang their hats on. It's clear and obvious. Too many people are hiding behind it. Yeah. Um, Do you know what, Glenn? Do you think it's taken away, you know, like referees? It, it's VARs making it easy for referees. And, and, you know, it's, instead, of them just, it's, instead of them just refereeing the game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because, and, and, and to use VAR properly. And then to go and look at decisions, all decisions. You know, when when VAR says it's contentious, instead of saying, as a young referee saying, as a as a older VAR sitting there going, well, I'm going to undermine this referee and make him look stupid here. So, it, is it just not working in, in cohesion, or is it, or is VAR a problem that we're going to have to get rid of? VAR is certainly a problem. Whether or not we're going to get rid of it or we're stuck with it now, who knows? You know, that's the decision of, of, of Webby and the people in the, who are running the competitions. But we, it can't carry on in its current format. It's, it is not working. It's, it's not even every week. It's more or less every game now. Yeah. Where yeah. fans are coming away and going, hey, VAR's done it again. It's not, you know, it's not just every week. They're spoiling most games here. Uh, 
what VAR definitely has made referees is lazy because yes. and, and also the, the refraining from making those big decisions. Exactly right. What? Exactly. That's what I was that was all I was alluding to then. Yeah. If, if it was, I, we're I, think we're he, I think we've got why, why should the referee put his neck on the block and give it? Yeah. No, so yeah. well, we're in the room going to bail him out. I think I think they've got to keep VAR, and I I, I was made up when VAR came in because I go back a few years to the incident at the Etihad when yeah. Raheem Sterling was a yard and a half onside, yeah. yeah, and they gave it off, and I thought yeah. right VAR is going to cut all that out. Yeah. I think I think with the technology that you see on Sky and BBC and all the other and and B Sky all these things, I think you've got to keep VAR, but it's got to be run properly. What you've touched on what we were talking about earlier, because you're talking about factual decisions offside, yeah. and where VAR comes in and nobody gets them wrong is when they draw yeah. the lines across. Well, I say nobody, they certainly do with Sadio Mane. But, uh, as a, but, as uh, a football, as a football them right now, because they're yeah, putting the lines across, and that's factually proven. Where yeah. they are still getting it wrong is mm. when it's coming down to the opinion. Of the VAR sat in his television room because he's that's telling the ref that's a penalty. Well, we can yeah. also not. Or he's yeah. telling the ref that's a red card. That's what I mean. It's, the, actual, the actual process, in essence, is is perfect. You look at cricket, you look yeah. at rugby, you look at tennis, and they've all they've all fine tuned whatever type of VAR, if you want to call it, for their sport. But as yeah. a football fan, I was galled to see that when when Sterling was was called up, and I thought, well, VAR is going to correct all that. Now it may not be offsides, but they seem to be. You don't want them. You don't want them looking at every decision, but certainly major decisions. And they should they should overturn it if that's the case. But as football fans, we think, well, they, they don't. I mean, we've just had a an ex referee saying he didn't want to get his mate into trouble yeah. a few days ago. A local, you know, a local ref to us. And you wonder how, how long, how often that goes on. It, it's like mm. their little sort of click. Mm. And if you everyone makes mistakes, and I've always I've always felt that referees have got that split, like you said, a split second decision. And if they've got it wrong, they haven't done it purposely. They've got it wrong, but that's what VAR should correct. Mm. And to us, I mean, we come out the game, we see it real time at the match, and then we'll see the highlights or the, a rerun of the game, and we think, God Almighty, why well, wasn't that given? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, things like the Van Dyke sending off at Newcastle. At the yeah. time, I thought he's won the ball, but if you slow it down and you you look at it, it, it was a foul, and yes, it was a foul. Foul and a red card was correct because it was outside. Yeah, the and you yeah. can actually you can actually say, all right, they got it right in the end. At the yeah. time, I thought they got it totally wrong, yeah. but I, I just think they don't help themselves. They've got the tools there; they haven't had any better yeah. sort of tools to work with. On, on on getting decisions correct and they're still they're still doing it wrong and I just don't know I just don't know what the answer is but I, I don't VAR, want to lose VAR I don't want to lose VAR VAR so, the mechanics of VAR it works works superbly well it's a great system yeah definitely where it's falling down is human error yeah human error still that's letting VAR down VAR system mechanics of work exceptionally well. You can't fault it. There's cameras everywhere, lines wherever you want to draw them, at all angles covered. It gets let down when it comes down to somebody making an opinion call in a room. It's the human that's letting the system down, not the system itself. 
But it's also the guidance they have and how to use it as well. I've said this before about clear and obvious. You get a situation where uh, the, the, the on-field ref doesn't have as good a view as the VAR. And he and he thinks it might be something, but I'm not sure. I'll let VAR, I'll let VAR tell me if it is. The VAR then goes, well, I can see why he's done that, so I won't, I won't uh, overrule it. And you end up somebody kind of going with the opinion of somebody who didn't see it as well as the, as, as the VAR. For me, take away the clear and obvious, and just say the VAR should just say. Well, actually, personally, I'd have given it different. I'm not not worried what he's done. I'd have given it different. And then I go to the VAR, because I, I, I like the idea of the on-field ref making the decision. Mm. I, I'd have the VAR just go, you know, ref, you might want to take a look at that one. And not tell him why. Mm. Just just let him have, mm. the, have, the, have the pictures that the, uh, that the VAR had and then make the decision. Mm. It's a good point you make about this clear and obvious because what's clear and obvious to me might not be clear and obvious to you. Yeah, really. Yeah. What's the point of this phrase, clear and obvious? What about, what about Arsenal Man United at the weekend? Anthony Taylor gave on field a penalty kick uh, when Kai Havertz went through. I thought, that's clear, that's obvious. Now, it got overturned and people can argue, you know, you put 10 referees in a room, five will still give that, five won't. Because there was some minimal contact on, on Kai Havertz. People will argue whether it was enough for him to go down, but there was still minimal contact on him. So you can argue that one until the cows come home and do whatever they are, do whatever they're on. But what happened the week before when Rashford went down it, exactly the same amount of minimal contact against Forrest, given, looked at by VAR, stood by the decision. So yes. within seven days... We've got one team benefiting twice from different decisions on same similar incidents. That cannot be right. That cannot be right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you could say we benefited in the same way with the Somerslice penalty against yes. Bournemouth. Yeah, you know. yeah, but there was contact. So put 10 referees in a room and you'll get five that say that was a penalty. Yeah. And you'll get five that say it wasn't. There wasn't enough contact. Now, you'll never argue, you know, you'll never prove that one way or the other. There's only one bloke knows whether there was enough contact to go over, and that was Summer's like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he knows. But there was I'll never team. understand, Glenn. I'll never understand what's on ball anymore. Yeah. It's just, it's to me, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's just gone to the, it's just gone to the point where you're looking at, you give, you give a penalty for on ball. And it's you think, well, God, you know, that could have been a bit, that's harsh. And then you don't give a penalty when a player moves his hand to the ball. It's it's like, it, it's it, that's what we were saying before about when you're looking at these decisions and we're saying that they, we come out, we all of us last week when we were talking about the game, so we would love to go to a football match and not talk about the referee or VAR. We yeah. never used to. We used to go to football matches, and when you was a liner and, and, and going through the game, and we we never sit there and complain. If a bad decision went against you, it went against you. That was it. I left with the human beings. They made a mistake. That was it. But I think now it's it's it, it 
you're not sure of anything anymore. You know, what is a handball? What's offside? You know, what's a what's a foul anymore? You know, some someone slides in. I, I, I can't remember who it was. watched the other day. It was in, I think it was in the in the Man United Arsenal game. Someone went over the top and caught caught a player at, at, like in the middle of the shin, and yet he doesn't give it. You know, it's just it's the inconsistency that's the killer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, going back to the handball, very first incident we talked about from the weekend was Friday night's game, wasn't it? Luton West Ham handball, James Ward Prowse. Yeah, sure, most football fans watching that are going, Oh, that's a penalty, and then they review it, and everybody's expecting penalty, and they're going, Oh, review over what? What? Yeah. How? How? <laughs> they are always supposed to be there for things like this, and you yeah. just shake your head and move on, and like, God, it's VAR again. <laughs> but it, 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 it makes you feel it may, does make it's one of the it's, to me it's one of the things about VAR. We've said all of us while we've been having conversations, it see they seem to use it better when we play in, in UEFA or in, in Europe. It seems even in the women's game, they seem to use it better. We we just we just at Premier League level for so, for whatever reason. And I don't want to keep having a go at referees because it's a job I wouldn't like to do myself. You know, like it really is a hard job, and it's you know, like you, 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 the speed of the game and the speed of things happen. You know, like it, 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 decisions are made on on on, on whim, but it seems to work better in Europe. And I don't know whether I have a theory. I have a theory on that, Thomas, and I very very quickly learned when I started going abroad, that you will never be criticised by UEFA or FIFA for being too strong. So if a, if a challenge went in and you, you thought, that's tasty, go red. Because yeah. if, that's, if you think that's a strong yellow, go red. And you knew full well that UEFA or FIFA would back you, as long as you haven't got it horrendously wrong, but there was no contact at all. UEFA or FIFA will back you. And if, and if a team dared to question your decision formally by putting the complaint into UA for all FIFA, they would more than more often than not get met with the response, do you want to appeal this formally? They'd appeal it formally and UA would double the sanction. They'd double the fine and they'd double the suspension for the player and say, do you want to, do you want to appeal again? And, 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 <laughs> that, and that's, what, that's what teams knew they were dealing with in UA from FIFA. And that's what that brushes off and then onto the refereeing team because we felt backed, we felt supported, and we knew so long as we went out and did our job and didn't absolutely get something horrendously wrong, we would be backed on whatever decision we will make. Now, that's I can tell you that's not always felt the same on the Premier League, particularly yes. when, when we were being run by the fellow who recently left because he was dreadful, he was dreadful, and I don't mind. I don't mind saying that publicly. <laughs> you don't. You don't need to tell us that. We no. About um, Mr. Riley. I. Yeah. I remember. I remember being on. I used to do um, an half-hour show on Radio Merseyside called Red Alert, and and it was the it was the day before. Um, I think my, it was last game of the season. I think Man United were playing at Everton, and I remember saying Man United needed to win. I think to win the league. And I remember saying on Radio Mayside that night, 
There's one thing I can guarantee you now is that Mike Riley will have an assist for Van Nistelrooy at Goodison tomorrow <laughs> and give United a penalty. And sure enough, as water is wet, Man United got a penalty and Riley was put into the spot. Couldn't stand the little little squirt. Never liked it when he was refereeing Liverpool games. Yeah. And, and as I say, I always thought he was a he was a, a sort of manca heart. Um, and because that season that I'm talking about, he was the best assist. He had the best assist record in the Premier League for giving for giving uh, penalties for Van Nistelrooy. And as I say, it's uh, and, and I'm not being biased at all. If you if you see what I mean, just one more question before we move on from VAR. Do you think that like? Ex sort of officials like yourself, you know, the thing from Tring, people like that should should be used on VAR rather than it come from the elite band of referees because they're like, you know, with the Mike Dean situation, I didn't want to put me mates in it. So you're a totally separate team. So you've got no agenda or no, no, no sort of friendship with any of the on field referees. So you're looking at it totally separate. Yeah. Although it's not that it's not so long ago that I came off the list, that, you know, I worked with Michael Oliver, I worked with Anthony Taylor, I worked with Dino, I've worked with quite a few of the lads who are still on the list, both in the middle and on the lines. But that, that I can absolutely assure you that made no difference to me. If I was in the VAR room, I would give it as I see it, with no fear or favour to anyone or anything. And I can tell you the same would come from Mark Halsey. Jeff Winter, Graham Pope, all you know, these top referees, Alan Wiley, who would not be afraid of saying to the referee, listen, you're going to have a look at this. We'll have a look at it. Because I think you've called that one wrong, as opposed to, well, I didn't want to drop my mate in it. Or as opposed to, oh, I can't, I can't tell Michael Oliver who's got it wrong because he's an established referee and I've only got on this season. I've got no right to this. They need an independent panel of people who are not afraid to call, you've got it wrong, lads. You know, I'm not going to go at you. We've all done it. You've got it wrong. Go and have another look. Yes, yeah. it should. It should be lads who are no longer active, but have been in that kitchen and they know how it can be. Yeah. Yeah. So ju- just one thing, you just mentioned Jeff Winter there. I, yeah. While you've made, brought his name up, I have to say, that he gave one of the worst refereeing performances I have ever seen in the um, in the Everton Liverpool game when Gary Mack scored the yes scored that free kick, yeah, free kick and I can say that because we won the game, but he was absolutely <laughs> terrible. And and as I say, he, um, I think good he's lad, yeah, no, I, I'm going to say less good lad, yeah. I, I, got, <laughs> I got into the trenches with him every day of the week. <laughs> anyway, I mean, we've been on for over an hour now, and I know people have thought of one thing we wanted to say and we wanted to talk about. So, I hope you'll come on again. Is uh, one final question to finish on, and you know, this this is intriguing, intrigued me to know. But you're a big red, you're a massive Liverpool fan, right? So, the question I'm going to finish on, I'll ask you again, you know, will you come on the pod again and talk about your love for Liverpool? Yeah, but the final. The final question I'm going to ask you is how were you allowed to run the line for Liverpool games when you're such a big red? 
Uh, I'll, I'll answer that the same way as I've answered it for the past 20 years. Listen, if, if anybody cares to check, the, the years that I was on the Premier League, 95, 96 season through to 2013, just remind me how many times Liverpool won the league. My <laughs> 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 yeah. time on the Premier League coincided with Liverpool being absolutely dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> We couldn't, we couldn't win that argument with a man who stood us. So, <laughs> so if anybody wants to accuse me of never having cheated in favour of Liverpool, well, I couldn't have been very good, could I? <laughs> you ran run on the line at the Etihad, were you, Glenn? We could not win a thing. We were Glenn, <laughs> Glenn you ran at the Etihad that day, were you? When, when Sterling was on, you weren't there, were you? No, no, that wasn't. <laughs> I can all be answered, that wasn't me, no. no. <laughs> not guilty. <laughs> so seriously, though, how, how come? Yeah, Liverpool Liverpool didn't win the league in that time. But how come? Because I know you've, you've you've run the line at Anfield at times. Oh God, yeah, loads of times. Yeah. So yeah. how come? How come that? Because that there's a theory amongst Liverpool fans when we talk. There's a lot of referees from Manchester say Anthony Taylor being a prime example, and you know he gets called a mank. You know what? You know what I mean? And I I I sort of when he was first given. The Man United Liverpool Man United game it was a game that ended nil nil a number of years ago. I just thought he was hung out to dry by whoever appointed him to that game because he couldn't win. If he gives anything to Man United, he's biased. If he gives anything to Liverpool, he's trying to prove that he's not biased against Man United. And yeah. there's a lot of sort of Manchester sort of based referees on the Premier League list, and there is a. There is an accusation that they don't like Liverpool when they referee Liverpool games, and so there's a there's a hint, say, of of bias towards us. So seriously, did how did you how were you allowed to officiate a Liverpool game? Would you would you be in such a big red? I was allowed. I tell you where I wasn't. I tell you where I wasn't allowed to go. It was Chesterfield, <laughs> yeah. Olivia. Um, I was allowed to go to Liverpool, and and. I absolutely can put my hand on my heart and and promise anybody, whether the bitter blues or whether the through through the reds, I never ever gave anything that I didn't believe to be absolutely correct in in oh. every game I did. Sometimes it went for Liverpool, sometimes it went against Liverpool. Um, I can tell you, I was responsible for chalking one off down at Fulham when Luis Suarez scored a perfectly good goal. And a and, uh, member of the coaching team from Liverpool came in and absolutely tore a strip off me. Uh, <laughs> rightly so, because it was a shocking decision. I gave him offside at the far post and he couldn't have been any more on. I don't know where. <laughs> and we were playing at Fulham and I think my head was under the tens. Oh, terrible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've, give, I've given them against Liverpool and it's cost them. Um, yeah. So I was allowed. I was allowed to do it, and I can absolutely assure, guarantee anybody and everybody, I never gave anything, either for against Liverpool, for against Everton, United, City, whoever that I didn't believe to be correct. Listen, I, I wanted to get on. I wanted my career to progress. Why would I ever put myself in a position where I cheated and, yeah. and spoil that progression? I wanted to go to World Cup. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't sort of suggesting that you would. What I was no, more no. asking the question about was how come, you know, would you be a Liverpool fan? The people yeah. who appoint officials would appoint you to do that game, knowing that you were a Liverpool fan. No, 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 no. 
you know, Mark Plattenberg never refereed Newcastle, it's from Newcastle. Uh, Michael Oliver doesn't referee Newcastle, it's from Newcastle. But for some reason, Anthony Taylor, <laughs> and I can I nearly slipped a couple of names out there who I know are confirmed United fans. I know them. They've told me in the past. I know they're United fans. I know they are. You've got to come on these, again and tell us. These, <laughs> these, lads are, these lads are red through and through, but they yeah. go to United. But I am satisfied. They go to United with a clear mind and a clear conscience. They're out, they're called, they might call some, you know, some, some bad mistakes, but I'm, I'm sure they do it honestly. Mm. I've always maintained to people, listen, the English referees, we might not be the best in the world, but we're, we're honest. Mm. You know, I know of a Greek referee, I know of a German referee, who both went to prison for match, fix, match fixing. That's never happened in England as far as I know. Mm. Never. Can I ask you a quick question, Glenn? Yeah. Just one answer, just one answer. Who do you think is the best referee in England at presence? Michael Oliver. Mm. Michael. <laughs> Right. I, I, I would have said Michael Oliver or Anthony Taylor, but like I think I, I, I would. Um, they're the best two, I think, uh, out of out of what's out there at the moment. Yeah. See, I but think what, Michael Oliver used to be, but but I, for me, Anthony Taylor is probably a better. Yeah. Rep now. I agree. With is, just to add to that, I think it's a very very mediocre bunch we've got at the moment, and I don't yeah. say perfect. I don't say that's shocking anyone, but. Um, you know, I worked in an era where we've got Graham Paul, Mark Olsey, Alan Wiley, Steve Dunn, Jeff Winter, Paul Durkin. What a referee he was. He was you know, my favourite, Glenn. He was him, my favourite. I thought yeah. he was the best referee out of the lot. Yeah, I loved working with him. Um, yeah. You know, we've got six, seven, eight top referees every week who, Philip Don, who was one of my bosses, and then Keith Hackett, they could hand them any game and they knew they were in safe hands. Now, you take out Michael Oliver and you take out Anthony Taylor from this group, who else we got that you think you could send them anywhere they can handle anything? Because I am struggling. I'm struggling. Well, well, I'd rather give them to the younger ones. Like like I said about Thomas Bramall, he had a, he had a pretty decent game, although yeah. John Brooks is a younger one and he's absolutely rubbish. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he just lost the point is, we had we had seven or eight available every week yeah. in, in the late nineties and early two thousands. We haven't got that strength. We haven't got that depth of talent anymore. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, we've been going now for well over an hour. So we'll thank Glenn for coming on tonight. We'll have him on again so we can talk about his love for the for the Reds and. Hopefully we'll steer away from VAR and referees so we can talk about proper football. Thanks as always to Tom. Thanks to Pete. Thanks to Mike. And as we always end the podcast with, don't buy the sun, justice for the 97. You'll never walk alone. And until next time, see you soon. Thanks, Glenn. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Glenn. Cheers, Glenn. Cheers, Glenn. No problem. Bye-bye.